treated as a sermon, what I'm going to do mostly is actually just look up other passages of Scripture, which I've, well, I've given them all out so that you don't have to listen to me all the time. Um, it'll become clear when you need to read your Scripture out because it'll come up on the slide. And I'll just say a few words sort of linking things together and then read these Scriptures. So Peter here is actually returning to the topic that he introduced in chapter 1, that one of suffering for your faith. His letter, the purpose of his letter really is to warn his readers and... Through on the thing. Can you just put your hand up so the mic comes to you? Yeah, that might be quite useful if we could pass you the mic, yeah. That's a good idea, thank you. Um, yeah, so Peter picks up this... When he started his letter, he was warning the, his readers to expect some persecution. It seems he might have had something particularly in mind. that the, um, Maybe he realised that the political opinion was turning against Christians and there might be some actual physical persecution about to take place but the warning is a more general one as we shall see and he's really dealing with the issue of why we, we suffer as Christians and whether it, what we're supposed, how we're supposed to regard it so back in chapter 1 he says the following I will read this one out myself this is 1 Peter 1, 6-7 In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Notice he says that your faith is greater worth worth than gold and perishes though refined by fire so unfortunately the old NIV when it picks this up again in, in chapter 4 doesn't loses this idea of burning but that idea of burning is in the Greek it, it, it's a word that means to burn is to refine something and so it's picked up in, in verse 12 of our passage dear friends do not be surprised at the fiery ideal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, he's picking up this idea that he'd introduced right at the beginning of a refining fire, something that to make you, to purify the gold. And that is, the, the Greek word translated fiery ideal does seem to have that basic meaning of to purify metal. And what, how does that work? Well, the purpose of this trial is to refine your faith by burning away that which is dross, that which is valueless. How can you ensure gold is pure unless you melt it? How can anyone, believer, unbeliever, friend or enemy, indeed even yourself, how can you know your faith is pure, is genuine, unless it's tested, unless it's proved? Anybody can claim to believe but unless you put that claim to the test how can you really be sure and how can anybody else be sure your faith is real so we have this passage of scripture and um, 
there's that slightly puzzling comment about judgment beginning with the house of God. But apart from that, the meaning of this passage, is, this passage I think, is fairly clear. It's, uh, sorry? Sorry, it's all right. <laughs> I hope you're not going to confuse matters. Wait till it comes up on the slide. <laughs> yeah. Apart from that slightly puzzling comment about judgment beginning with the house of God, the meaning of the passage I think is fairly clear. It's uh, blunt Peter stuff. It's not uh, complicated Paul stuff. Um, so we need to follow the threads of Peter's argument and apply it to our 21st century Western culture. But of course we need to do that by not diving straight in there. But we do need to think about what it meant to his original readers first. But I think in this particular case, again, that's fairly clear. That he was warning them to expect persecution and suffering and warning them how to deal with it. So we perhaps don't need to focus on that so much as we might have done on other passages of Scripture. It, perhaps we can, in this case, think more directly about how it applies to us. We may not be facing precisely the same challenges as Peter's first readers, but the French have a saying, don't they? Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more it changes, the more it's the same thing. And the other thing you need to do when you're turning to a Bible study, I think, and again, we haven't got time for, to ask you to do it. Ideally, that would be the way to do it, but we haven't got time for that. Is you need to to tease out the main thread of the argument first of all sort of put headings as to what you think Peter is actually saying here so I've gone through that exercise and I hope you'll uh, agree with me that this is basically what he's saying he says in verse 12 of our passage first of all that suffering is to be expected secondly and this is the important bit in one sense he says that suffering is actually a cause for rejoicing that's a bit strange that, isn't it? But he's going to explain why that is. He then points out a couple of sort of caveats or warnings. First of all, he points out that not all suffering is physical. You notice that in verses 12 and 14 he talks, talks about being... In, it could be a fiery trial, but that fiery trial could be just being insulted. People saying nasty things about you. doesn't necessarily mean being thrown to the lions. And then I think an important point he makes is that this is not an excuse for provoking opposition. You might say if, if suffering is good for us then, then let's go out and do something bad and then we'll suffer for it. But he wants to point out that that's not what he's saying at all. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And again we'll think about that in a minute. And then it, as of course you have to have in these things he has a summary and a conclusion at the end in verse 19. So what I'd like to do is look at these points one after the other, mostly just by reading the relevant, other relevant passages of Scripture, as I said, and that's why I've handed them all out. So first of all, he says that um, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. It's we should, in fact, be expecting it. So... As, Somebody got uh, Matthew 24, 9 to 13. 
Uh, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the intense wickedness, uh, because of the increase in w- of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands down to the end will be saved. Yes, no. Otherwise, Peter is just re- really repeating the teaching of Jesus here. And Luke, um, Luke 14, 27 to 29, another well-known passage, but worth reading. Um, sorry. Uh, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be, a disip- cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So, discipleship comes with a trigger warning, a popular thing today. Jesus gives it, that's a trigger warning, isn't it? He said, you, you've got to be prepared to carry your cross. A person carrying a cross in that culture was a dead man walking. He was on the way to be crucified. Now, he's not, I think, Jesus is not here, I think, talking about literally being crucified because he's saying if you, you, to follow him and be his disciple. But he's saying perhaps you've got to think of yourself as dead. As you're, you know, you're no longer alive as you were, but you're alive instead in Christ. And are you up for the cost? Sometimes people present the gospel as if, you know, it's it's you know, it's all happy singing and clapping and fun fellowship and so on. But Jesus never said that, and Peter never said that. He warns that it's a fight, it's a struggle. Another, as I haven't put this particular reference in, but it reminds me of another, now of another reference of Jesus said, if you're going to fight a battle, you've got to make sure before you sit down before you fight the battle that you've got this army to, to do it. You're up, you know, you, you're prepared to do it. And that always comes as a warning. If we present the gospel of Jesus Christ as saying it's, say it's just all happy clappy, then people are going to get a nasty shock. Either that, either either get a nasty shock when they find it isn't, or they get a nasty shock at the end when they find they haven't been following the true gospel, the true and being a true disciple at all. So Peter goes on to develop his argument, and he suggests, and this is in a sense his main point, that suffering is actually a cause for rejoicing. He's saying that if discipleship comes with a warning, it also comes with an encouragement. And again, this was a key part of Jesus' teaching. So Matthew 5, 10 to 12 is obviously from the Beatitudes, of course. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Peter is uh, just channeling Jesus' teaching here. But he also speaks from his own experience. So we find that in Acts 5.41, if somebody can read that. Acts 5. Somebody not, not got it. Nobody got Acts 5.41? It's just one verse. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Yes, they'd had a run-in with the the Jewish officials and uh, not been, uh, well, the the officials had treated them badly. And Peter himself said that was an opportunity for rejoicing. And the other apostles took exactly the same, or the other New Testament writers, shall I say, James is not an apostle, of course, emphasized this same point. So can somebody read James 1, 2 to 3? Yeah. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Thank you. And Romans 5, 3 to 4. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So suffering produces perseverance. What is perseverance? Well, in a sense, it's faith under pressure, isn't it? It's faith when it's costly to have faith. It's faith when there is opposition. Do you remember how Peter had started his letter? Uh, did, did I give that reference to somebody to read again? 1 Peter 6. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Thank you. So Peter is saying that your faith, like gold, needs to be refined. And when it's been refined, it will be something glorious that will give praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it's a difficult saying, but that's why 
suffering is a matter for rejoicing in, in that sense because it refines our faith and, sh and points to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Go on. Well, I was saying, yeah, okay, right, he says greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire. I think what he's saying is that the faith, you know, that if you melt gold it will eventually melt and run away. Although you, you heat it to um, purify it, to burn off the dross. Because I suppose he's saying nevertheless it will melt eventually. But um, he says your, your faith on the other hand won't melt under, under all the pressure. I think that's probably what he's saying. Yeah. No, it's the gold that... Gold is lasts a long time, but it might... Sorry, yeah. It might perish under eventually, but the faith won't, your faith won't if it's genuine. So, yes, that's a good point, isn't it? So we could sum this up in saying, the way you react to suffering will prove to yourself and to the church and to the world around whether or not your faith is real. Is your faith made of diamond or is it just glass? Is it just paste or crack at the first pressure? And so if we hold up, if our faith holds under suffering, that proves to us and to the other, others that our, that is a real thing, our faith is real. And Therefore, in a sense, he's, Peter's saying it's a privilege to suffer because Jesus is saying your faith is strong enough through, through my strength or through Christ in, in you. Your faith is strong enough to stand up to this. And that's in the sense why there is a, a benefit in suffering because it uh, actually shows that it's a real thing. I think that's the point he's making. Now, moving on. Suffering is not always physical. When I, um, I don't know whether you say this nowadays, when I was at school, back in the dark ages, um, we used to have a saying that said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I don't think that's so popular nowadays, and rightly so, because it's complete nonsense. Words can kill. Again, we've, we've only got to read the news, the things that happen on the internet. People have been driven to suicide by words. <coughs> and certainly the, the uh, Bible never says that words can never hurt us. So again, if somebody can read James 3, 6 to 8. Yeah. The tongue also fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. James is quite clear on the point, isn't he? He says that the tongue is deadlier than any wild animal. And um, we read one of the Beatitudes earlier. 
there were there are in Jesus's teaching there was a sort of counterpoint to the Beatitudes the, the woes he declares various woes at times he declares blessings in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount but he also declares woes somehow they can kind of reflect and are a, a counterpoint to the to the blessings so if we could read one of these is Luke 6 26 Thank you. I don't think we got that on the mic, but never mind. Woe wo to all when men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So I put it there, don't worry. If people. Oh, do you want to read it, read it again? Go on then. Woe to all men who speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophet. Beware. Everybody says what a good guy you are. Says what a terrific message you've got. We all want to hear it. Then that's Jesus means you're probably a false prophet. In the West today, we're unlikely to die for our faith yet. I say yet because um, it's been observed on by various people. It's a short step from burning books to burning people. But at the moment, we're unlikely to die for our faith. Almost any other kind of persecution and injustice is possible. Just being from just being shouted at, to being trolled on the internet, to be getting yourself arrested. People have been arrested just through praying near a near a birth control clinic not even praying out loud just standing praying quietly and people have been arrested for it we could lose our jobs as I say we could be in prison debanked debanking that's a, another popular thing nowadays isn't it get your bank account cancelled you can't live in a western society without a bank account it's impossible so if you have your bank account cancelled then you're in real trouble. And of course you might get your property vandalised is another thing that we've seen from time to time. So having said that um, that uh, suffering is, is, you know, shows the strength of your faith, you then issues this warning it's not an excuse for provoking opposition. And we do find this, don't we? The, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As um, Tertullian is, I think, misquoted as saying. He do not think he said quite that, but he did say something rather similar. But if that's the case, then show me... Surely we should be, all do the best we can to become martyrs. And in that sense, he meant, of course, those who actually die for the faith. So we should all become suicide bombers, perhaps. That seems to be what some Muslim t teaching is. But, of course, he doesn't mean this at all. And so he's very clear that we shouldn't be setting out to break the law because the law itself is good. 
So, um, somebody got 1 Peter 2, there's two bits there, 1 Peter 2, 12 to 15, and then chapter 3, 13 to 16. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I looked at the wrong um, verses, so this is, but I've, I've found it now. Okay, 1 Peter 2, 12 to 15. Um, sorry, I'm just finding it. So let's live such good oh, lives. Yeah. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it, is, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Okay, and then in chapter 3, from yep. verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to, go, to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Thank you. So uh, this is an important point. We're not going out of our way to be obnoxious. We're not going out of our way to break the law. We're not going out of our way. Certainly we're not going to become a suicide bomber or start, start a riot. It is when we suffer for doing good that it is beneficial. So we always have to keep a, keep a clear conscience. And he's, interestingly, he says, be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's not a popular principle nowadays, is it? That, you know, if somebody says, why are you saying this? This, this seems to be wrong. You give an answer, you explain. You argue the case. Not just to stand up and shout at them. In fact, he says... Keep a clear conscience. Uh, Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. They may claim you're a Nazi or something, but if you keep a clear conscience, they will find it difficult not to be ashamed of that. But of course, if you just make yourself on what they accuse you of being, then you're doing neither of you any good. I think this is perhaps important to emphasize a little bit more, that suffering for doing evil can take raise no benefit at all. In fact, it just brings the name of Christ into disrepute. It doesn't put, bring glory to Christ if you su suffer for doing evil and unfortunately 
There are many examples of history where the church has failed to learn this lesson. The murder of Hypatia of Alexandria, one of the earliest things where she was murdered by a mob claimed to be in the name of Christ. But a, a mob rule is not Christian. Never forget the Spanish Inquisition, as though you never expect the Spanish Inquisition, as they say, used to say on one of those satire problems, didn't, programs, didn't they? But yeah, I mean, that's not doing good. If you persecute people for disagreeing with you, which is what the Spanish Inquisition did, then that's not doing good, that's doing evil. And we have, we've seen cases to this day, haven't we, of mistreatment and exploitation of the vulnerable by Christians, whether in homes, yeah, care homes, or even in the context of actual, you know, actual Christian work. It's too easy to become a cult. If you're a popular leader, it's too easy for that to go to your head and move away from what you should be doing. And not treating people with respect and gentleness. It's too easy. And you still find those around you today who claim to be Christians, who even claim to be evangelical, you buy into the latest conspiracy theories and seem to advocate armed resistance. I have to say, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Because of this sort of behaviour, sometimes pro-lifers have been tarred as right-wing religious nuts. As I, I read on one on Quora, one uh, social media stream, just accused the American right of being um, a religious nut. Now, I don't think that's entirely fair, but you do find some, do think sometimes that, you know, are they really treating their opponents with gentleness and respect? It's a fair criticism, I think. So how do we avoid this pitfall? Well, Peter tells us, don't give way to fear. That's the way to avoid it. In a sense, we react with violence and retribution if we fear, don't we? And so he's saying, don't give way to fear. If you're going to suffer as a Christian, make absolutely sure that that suffering is not justified. It's not for doing something that's really evil. And the final point he makes is that um, suffering is in inevitable in a fallen world. Somebody got the mic there, pass it over. Suffering is inevitable in the, in the fallen world, but it will be worse for the unbeliever. Now, of course, Paul is touching on a, I'm sorry, Peter is touching on a difficult question here. Why does the good God create a world in which evil and suffering is possible? And you ain't going to get an answer from Peter in two, two sentences. But he does say that all of us are sinners and all of us in a sense suffer because of that. But it will be worse for the unbeliever. And he creates, he, um, 
quotes a verse from Proverbs. So I thought it would be worth just uh, worth reading that as our last text. It's the only New Testament, uh, Old Testament quotation I've got, and it's the one that Peter is actually quoting, but just gives it a bit more context. So uh, 1 Peter, well, Proverbs 11, sorry. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the winds, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked than the sinner. Whoso loveth instruction, loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. So, again, you, it can be quite difficult to get, get your head around some of this, but I think he's, what he's saying is that suffering for the believer brings glory to Christ. Suffering of the unbeliever brings glory to Christ in a sense, but because it's justified, it will be worse in the long run for the unbeliever. I think that's what he's saying. So, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. He who hates correction is stupid. Suffering is a form of discipline for us. And it um, teaches us not to give way to fear. But hopefully it purifies our faith and doesn't destroy it. But of course if our faith is not real, then it won't stand up to the test. So, in verse 19, Peter brings his argument to, to an end. In a sense, it is the end in one sense of the main thrust of the book. There is, a, there is another chapter, but um, that deals with more sort of practical issues. In one sense, verse 19 is the, is the conclusion for the book. He's set out warning them to expect um, suffering and to, not to fear and he sums it up in this verse 19. So there are a few more words of advice and encouragement in the next chapter, but they're really more like greetings for the end of the letter. This simple sentence answers his main question. And his main question, how can we live as Christians in a hostile and dangerous world? In the final analysis, it comes down to these three simple points. Expect suffering and opposition as God's will. Commit yourself to the faithful creator, continue to do good, and continue to do good. But it's worth noting that um, Jesus expressed it slightly differently. So again, we'll finish with two more readings. Luke 6, 35 to 36. No, it's all right. It's, uh, Roger's got that one. It's... Um. Yeah, Luke six thirty-five to 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And then Romans 12, 8 to 21, 18 to 21. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, thank you everybody for contributing. So that brings us back to this question. Now it's half past seven already. I wonder how much time we're going to have. Um, let's suppose, as I say, somebody com comes by at the book table and starts shouting and threatening you. Would you think it was an appropriate thing to do to report it as a hate crime? Yeah, I mean, that was my first reaction, too. On the other hand, if it should abide by man's laws, then you might be helping the victim of the crime to succeed as well as he learns. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that's, that, that's tr I think that's a good point. I mean, there's sort of... Perhaps is it, do you want to pass the mic round? Perhaps it's. It's not a hate crime if he disagrees with you. I mean, I mean, it, it's right if he's allowed to disagree with you, but um, if he threatens you, well, even if he threatens you, I mean, you know, you have to kind of let that go, don't you? But. Yeah, obviously, if he's a dangerous person, you need to report him. Yeah. I, mean, go on. I was just going to say that the shouting and the abuse and all that would be very upsetting, but I don't think it, it's worthy of reporting as a hate crime. I don't know. I, I feel a hate crime is something more. I don't know. Well, it probably should be, well, but whether it actually yeah. is is another question. Yeah, I mean... Um, I don't know, do you know? It must be a lot, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. I mean, we don't, we, I mean I, we don't necessarily agree with the idea of hate crime, do we? No. Well, it's just that, um, you know, okay, if somebody swears at you or is nasty to you, you've just got to take it on the chin, haven't you? You can't, it's not pleasant, but then, you know, you can't put people in prison just for swearing at you. I can't. Sorry. Can I? Shall I say? Um, I can't quite remember what it said, but I remember seeing a notice on one of the Brighton and Hove buses that um, was almost suggesting that if you were offended by what somebody said to you, then you should report it. If you were, offend, if you were offended, yeah. um, that and perhaps other things might suggest that 
Um, perhaps in the eyes of the law, or I don't know whether it's in the eyes of the law, but, but it was almost like it, it was encouraging people to think of offending me as a, or, and being rude to me or, you know, and having a go at me as a hate crime. I mean, I agree generally with what, what's been said about not reporting it as a, as a hate crime unless you felt that you were about to be attacked or something. But we live in a different culture. Uh, how does that does that affect what we do or don't do? How should it? I don't know. I think there's a bigger picture here. Um, you're down London Road and you're giving out literature and you're evangelising. Um, and a passerby comes up to you and shouts at you. Um, you don't know that person. You don't know their background. You don't know whether they've got um, mental health problems or anything like that. And I think in the first instance, you would try maybe to try and calm them and explain what you're trying to do. I don't think that reporting it would get you anywhere anyway, to be honest. I think also what Andy said, I think also listening to Peter, be prepared to give an answer uh, to anyone, you know. Um, so maybe if all that happened, it, you know, you, it would be, I think, better for us to say, well, actually, I don't believe that I'm spreading those things. Can I, you know, and then give an answer to your dispute in, in a gentle and respectful way, give an answer to why you are there um, and hopefully be able to uh, sow seeds of the gospel at the same time if they were prepared to listen, of course. If they're prepared to listen, then. Anybody else? I mean, once when I was doing the book table, we often, most weeks, would get somebody not quite as bad as that, but pretty similar. And we had one regular woman that she was a pagan and she'd tell us she was a pagan and tell us that we're all bigots because we believe everyone's going to hell and she'd really steam into us, you know. And um, so that isn't an unusual thing to happen at the book table. Jerome, did you want to say something? Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to add much value, really. I think we should, as Christians, be expecting and a certain amount of insult and abuse. And uh, I, I don't... I don't think we should... I think there, there needs to be a degree of being thick-skinned here. Mm -hmm. I, 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 the overall sense I'm getting from the Scriptures is it's going to be tough. You will get abused. You will get maligned. You will be insulted you won't be um you won't be held in huge res highly respected 
for your faith. But then I guess, I mean, is there a line where we do go to the authorities? And, and I mean, Paul did in Acts at times, didn't he? That but he was being hindered point, from, you know, I, there is a time for justice and going to the authorities, but I don't think, yeah. I think if, if, I, if, if we were being told that we couldn't proclaim the word of God, if we couldn't witness, if we couldn't speak the gospel then maybe we, that, that there's recourses to seek our rights to be able to do so. If someone was saying, you, you, your church, you can't preach that message, you can't preach the full counsel of God, then I think, you know, but if someone insults you because you're at the book table, I don't think you need to go, personally go running to the authorities. I think we should expect it. I'd be really surprised if you did the book table and you weren't insulted at some point. Mm. Yeah. I don't have much to add, just I wanted to throw up the idea that um, when we see people and they are in a, in a fury or in a, a sort of moment of hating, it's, uh, I mean, what's, what's been helpful for me is to remember that um, it's all product of the fall. And, you know, it, at times they're not even completely aware of that, that they're full of hate or of their, their position at times. I mean, Jesus' reaction to um, when, when he was on the cross um, was forgive them, they, they don't know what they're, what they're doing. Um, and and I, I think if you see it through, through the lens of this poor person is wrapped up in, in this, this problem that, that's happened because of the fall, because, because we've turned away from, from God, then suddenly... I don't, know about, I don't know about everybody else, but certainly I don't feel sort of the need to sort of run off and, and complain about them. Um, yeah. I mean, I, can, I, I very much, I think, rehearsed the arguments I would have thought of. Let, let me just uh, point out a few other th- arguments where perhaps you might make come to a different decision. One of them is already um, that um, Jerome has already raised that you know, if the law is being used to su- suppress the gospel when it shouldn't be, then why should you not appeal to the protection of the law? And, as, as, and, Rome, and Paul did it on several occasions. He, he even exploited his special status as a, as a Roman citizen because he was entitled to that protection of the law. And I think you need to keep in mind that that the law is there to punish evil. That's what Peter has actually said. And um, uh, that's not quite the same thing as, as re- reacting in personal revenge. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'd all agree that the one thing you shouldn't do is clonk somebody over the head with a copy of Calvin's Institutes. Um, that would certainly be wrong. But that's not necessarily the same thing as saying you shouldn't appeal making a legitimate appeal to the to the law. Um, another reason in this particular case is you might think, as I do, that the law itself is not very well framed and that by actually making an appeal to the law in that case you might be actually pointing out the, that the law needs, needs revising. Plus there is the fact that if you appeal to the law, it might convince that person that they're actually doing something wrong and they're not being reasonable. So there are arguments on both sides, I think.
Um, you know, the first reaction is, is, especially when you read that Romans passage, is they know certainly not, just keep quiet. And I think, you know, if you can do good, you know, if you can buy that person a cup of coffee or something, then do that. But it's not necessarily saying you should never go to law, I think. You know, there may be a argument sometimes on the other side. Anything else anybody is dying to say? Well, c c can I just add, uh, before I was saved, I remember there was someone that I was quite rude to and insulting of because of their faith. Um, and I remember one of the things that really struck me that was so powerful is that they were just so, continued to be very kind and patient mm -hmm. and loving. And in a sense, there was a convicting, um, there was something that convicted me about that later, um, which was very powerful. That was for something quite Christ-like. Whereas I think if they, if they'd have kind of played the uh, kind of hate crime card or, um, or, or took t terrible offence, it might have. Does that make sense? It yes, there, there is. Um, I mean, there have been cases of Christian women being raped, and um, they've gone to the law to say that, um, on the one hand, to say that. Um, you know, this is a crime, it should be reported and should be you know, punished under the law because that's what the law is for, and, you know, to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. But at the same time, saying they would actually forgive their attacker. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe if it becomes a physical attack of some sort, it makes a difference. Yeah. Also... Um, yeah, we, I mean, hate, hate crime is um, an, a sort of attack on your thinking, isn't it? I mean, um, it's about, you know, um, people, uh, you, you want to say, so what am I trying to say? He's, it's a hate crime if the other person disagrees with you. Um, but um, we, we don't want to accuse that person just of disagreeing with us, and that's not necessarily yeah. a hate crime. Mm. But religious intolerance is one of them, though. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Mm. yeah. No. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. It's a specific thing. Oh. Okay. Mm. So that person could have been offending uh, again. Yeah. So your faith, your faith so yeah. But Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because they're allowed to. Certain things you can say, 
Okay, you can you can respectfully you can respectfully you can respectfully um, discuss with them, can't you? Yeah, no, not attacking. Well, okay. I mean, let, let's. I hope this has been useful. It's a, the next verse in one Peter says, "To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will share in the glory to be revealed." I think Daniel wanted to say something. So let's. Did you want to say something? I give you the last <laughs> word. I did earlier. As the elder, will give you the last particularly word. Particularly been thinking about it in the last few moments. Uh, but I, I think, like Jerome said, I kind of would expect something like this if I was doing book table. But I, gu I guess it, it sort of depends on the, the th threatening. Um, yeah. Um, like, it could be very mild. And I, I think I could... Uh, yeah. Um, they're up under that, but if it was, uh, I mean, we, we were just li literally having a chat. If it was, I know where you live and I'm going to come to your house tonight and do awful things, then I it's think I probably issue, would, yeah. would report that actually sensibly. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, but we are told to expect suffering, aren't we? Well, yeah. Peter's very clear on that. And um, we rejoice probably not in the suffering itself, but we rejoice in uh, sharing uh, with Christ in, in suffering for his name. Um. Yeah, indeed, thank you. Well, that's, time's gone. Um, I will say a prayer, a closing prayer, but actually our last song that we're going to sing is itself a prayer. So let's, in a sense, make it the main part of our closing prayer. I think you will know it. It's purify my heart because it's, based on 1 Peter, of course, and similar passages. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin deep within. So let's uh, sing this together and say, make it a, it is a prayer, so let's sing it as a prayer.